Hello, welcome to A Leader Like Me podcast, where we will be amplifying diverse voices. My name is Advita Patel. And I'm Priya Bates, and we're co-founders of A Leader Like Me. We really hope you enjoy this listen. This week, we chat to Jade Pichette, who is an award-winning educator with speciality in equity and organizational change. They have been presenting on issues of diversity and inclusion for over 15 years. They currently serve as the manager of program at Pride at Work Canada. They began their career in community organizing and social work in the mid 2000s. Jade was one of the founders of Trans Youth Ottawa, for which they received the Capital Extra Youth Activist of the Year Award in 2007. Their work led them to pursue a Bachelor of Social Work from the Carleton University in 2010 and a Master of Social Work from Ryerson University in 2013. I loved this conversation with Jade. They shared so many gems and so many insights that they kept me thinking for days after the interview. What was your favorite moment, Priya? You know, what I love about Jade is they really want to drive change. They are very passionate and they want to educate. So there were a lot of moments where Jade would take a step back and say, this is what I mean and this is the definition. And I found that I learned so much while they provided that insight. And it was really coming from such a great place to say, we know that there are things that we need to get used to, that there are mistakes we're going to make, but they are going to be at the forefront providing education in in the Pride Network with Pride Canada and also moving into the accessibility space. So it was really great that they are so passionate about educating and driving change and moving us forward together. Jade shared so much vulnerability on this conversation. So we really hope you enjoy it. Please do follow them. All their details are on our show notes. Champion them and make sure that you also share our podcast if you enjoy listening to it. Leave us a review. Send us a DM. You know, we really appreciate the support you've shown to us so far. We really hope you enjoy this conversation. If you are responsible for the diversity, equity and inclusion mandate for your organization, join Wings, a bespoke program where we bring the experts to you and provide a safe community to share best practices to help you progress and cultivate a culture of belonging. You can find out more at aleaderlikeme.com. Hi, Jade. Welcome to our Leader Like Me podcast. We're really excited to have you here with us today. Before we kind of go into the nitty gritty and get to know you a little bit more, could you tell us or share with us a little bit about who you are and what inspires you about the work that you do? Really glad to be here on the the podcast with you. Um, so I'm Jay Pichette. Uh, my pronouns are they and them, and I'm an inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility professional based in Takaranto, which is um, traditionally the territory of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, the Anishinaabe. Um, 
and the uh, Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. And within Toronto, uh, we have the uh, Williams Treaties that were signed with multiple Chippewa and Mississauga bands, um, as well as Treaty 13. Um, and so I'm somebody of mostly Scottish and British and culturally French Canadian descent. So I am a settler on this territory, um, even though I, I was born and raised on a different traditional territory known as, uh, now known as Ottawa, but um, is the traditional territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. And so as a treaty person, I always think it's important to um, start with that. And so for more international listeners who aren't as familiar with land acknowledgements, um, I'd encourage you to check out the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 Calls to Action um, to understand that. In, in terms of where I'm currently, I'm the manager of programs at Pride at Work Canada, Fierté au Travail du Canada, uh, which is a national nonprofit uh, with offices based in Toronto, but with folks across the country. We have staff in four provinces. We have board members and many more than that. Um, and really we try and do work uh, from coast to coast to coast um, as much as we can in a good way. Um, and within that work, we work with over 200 large employers around 2SLGBTQIA plus inclusion. And uh, within this work, I've been a professional queer uh, transfer pay pro homo, whatever you want to say, um, for for quite a number of years. I'm coming up on two decades of doing this type of work in, in different uh, organizations, but I've been really happy with being at Pride at Work Canada, where I get to really make a difference in a way that I never thought I'd even be able to, um, including um, interacting with folks that previously would have never wanted to talk to me as a autistic trans femme um, who experiences multiple forms of discrimination. And uh, it's really an interesting world that we live in now with DEI in that regard. So um, so that's a bit of who I am. I am proudly queer, proudly pansexual, proudly trans, proudly autistic, proudly disabled. And, you know, all of those pieces are pieces of me. Um, but also, you know, I, I love board games. <laughs> um, you know, I, I am a music fan. Um, and so there's many other pieces of me. Um, I'm a history geek. If you ever want to talk history, I'm here for it. And, you know, in terms of this work, I get so passionate because I see the impact that we can have for those of us who have experienced different forms of marginalization in our lives, um, especially those of us who are multiply marginalized, right? And so this work is stuff that I'm doing where I'm trying to be the role model that I needed when I was young, which is a, a big journey that we all have to work on, but it, it's a journey that I'm very glad to be with on and Amazing. on. I mean, goodness, Jade, you know, the, the banners you've got on your on your CV because when I was doing a little bit of research before we kind of came onto the um the, the talk today because I wanted to make sure that you know I, I had my bases covered because and your resume or CV you know whatever you reference it is incredible you know you've you've worked with some fantastic organizations you've supported some really great initiatives can you you know you you mentioned a little bit and you and you, you you covered it in your intro there about there's different parts of you, especially around accessibility and, and why that's really important to you. Could you share a little bit more about why you're focusing so much energy in this area of work and why it's important for organizations and leaders and even folks who are 
working for themselves or working with others to pay a little bit more attention in this in this part? For sure. So as somebody who is autistic, which I consider being autistic a neurotype, I consider myself neuroqueer, which is a a term that's starting to float around within um, queer and neurodiverse communities. And uh, that I don't consider a disability in and of itself, but I consider the way that society treats me because I'm autistic as a disability. Uh, but also I, I live with uh, chronic illness and chronic pain that can result in me being in different places. And um, I'm very open about the fact that I've also lived with mental illness in my life. I've uh, had a bit of a journey in that regard, though, you know, things like therapy and, and access to medications and the like that come through having a work insurance plan for the first time really is, is lovely. Those pieces are, are, are a part of me, but I'm also very conscious of the fact that as somebody who has these disabilities, who is queer, who is trans, the likelihood of me having a full-time permanent position is very rare. Um, in Canada, most uh, about half of uh, trans people with disabilities do not have a, uh, have stable employment, um, and most are still uh, also that do have employment are underpaid or feel like they can't be out about their needs um, in the in the workplace. And so I see the impact on other members of my communities and just the fact that we need to work in coalition, right? The the only way that we will actually make things fully accessible to everybody is if we work in coalition and talk about our differing needs, the different ways that we see the world, that we experience the world, um, the different ways that we are able to communicate. And, you know, accessibility is just... It's such a big topic um, because there's so many different sides of it. You know, there there is the neurodiversity piece. There is the mental health piece. There is uh, different types of uh, communications differences, um, sensory differences. You know, all of these different pieces that impact a person and how they interact in the world. um, That if you're not experiencing those uh, forms of discrimination, you probably don't know uh, that they exist necessarily um, because you don't have that experience unless you maybe had the experience of somebody in your family who goes through that or a close friend or somebody else who, who's close in your life. And so, you know, accessibility is really the focus of saying that every human has inherent value and that it is our society that stops people from having access and not necessarily the disabilities themselves. I mean, as somebody with chronic pain, for instance, having a disability sometimes, it just sucks for the the experience of it. Um, You know, like it's not great to to not have energy or, or have a day where I'm struggling to walk, for example. But it's really the way that the society treats me that impacts how I experience that. So I'm lucky that I work at an inclusive employer. If uh, I need to work from home, though often we're working from home anyway right now, but um, uh, I can always make that decision, right, on the day of. Um, I can do flex time. I can change up my day. Um, But most people with disabilities don't have those options. And either they're stuck in a situation where they might have some type of uh, disability uh, 
funding or access, but that still limits your ability to get additional work, that limits your ability to marry somebody, that limits your ability to um, interact in other ways, or you go the route where you don't have that type of access, which is also hard to get in many places to uh, get disability um, support, uh, financial support. Um, so even those of us who uh, are not going to go that route or don't have access to that route are often kept out of the workplace for just other, other reasons, whether it's the actual barriers that we intersect with on the way um, or just how people feel about us, quote unquote, you know, like as a neurodiverse person, for example, it's like, I don't know, they're just kind of weird, you know, like I just, they just, they're just not the right fit um, without explaining the the reasoning behind that, right? And, and not taking in other things into account of like, why is this person going through some of these uh, challenges? Why are they hitting these barriers? Because we experience multiple barriers. There are the ones actually related to our, our disabilities that, you know, with certain forms of technology or support persons or assistive support, suddenly those barriers don't exist for, uh, for those pieces. But then it's also the societal barriers that continue to exist, um, even if people don't realize they're being discriminatory. Because I honestly believe in the inherent goodness of people, but people just don't necessarily know where they're falling behind. And so I really want to try and make a difference in that regard. And uh, one of the things we're actually doing at Pride at Work Canada is working on an accessibility action plan that will have both internal implications, but also external where we try and role model how accessibility is something that everybody can afford. Uh, I like we're at a small nonprofit. If we can afford to do it, we can role model that other people can afford to do it. Um, and so, you know, it's a, a big working and we have a long way to go before we have an accessible society. But if each of us, you know, picks one thing that we can do in a week, in a month, um, to make sure that what we're doing is more accessible, or even just every time we work on a project, we say, what are the accessibility concerns here? Go through a checklist um, and really kind of ascertain that. Because I wanna see people have work. I wanna see them have work that they enjoy. I want to see them have a good life. Just because you're disabled doesn't mean you shouldn't have access to a good life. I love that. Uh, you know, Jade, you talked about, you know, there's so many parts of who you are and what you bring. And, and the conversations we often have with our members of a leader like me um, is about the, you know, the need to assimilate or pretend you're someone else mm. coming into the workplace uh, and hide who you really are because you don't think who you are is going to be accepted, assimilate. Talk to me a little bit about what it's been like for you to work for an organization where you could bring your whole self to work. Yeah, so uncovering, because um, I, I, I talk about that concept uh, from the perspective, from using the word covering, so hiding pieces of ourselves. Um, and I don't necessarily think that people need to bring their whole self to work, which is a kind of a radical concept, I know, but it's not safe for many of us to do so, 
right? And so sometimes it's that safety that is more important than anything else. And I would love people to be able to bring their whole selves to work, uh, ideally. Um, but I don't think as a marginalized person or uh, somebody who's part of an equity deserving group, um, that that's necessarily something that we need to do on our own. That's something that our workplaces need to make those, those changes for. Um, and it's been a journey even for myself, you know, like uh, within my um, current position, I've been able to do that, that uncovering, but even that has taken time. You know, I, I wasn't open about all of my disabilities when I started this job. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that everybody knows I'm trans. Everybody knows that I'm queer. Like, you know, there, there are certain pieces of myself that I'm not able to cover. Um, mm -hmm. You know, sometimes queer and trans folks get talked about as if we're an invisible minority. And I, I really dislike that because some of us, we're visible no matter what. We just can't help it. Like, <laughs> and, and and so that, that has meant that there's other pieces of myself that I had to downplay because I already knew I was going to experience that, that discrimination um, and have in previous jobs, which I won't talk too much about, but, but uh, you know, I have experienced discrimination around different pieces of myself in, in previous positions. So, you know, really feeling comfortable and safe to be able to show some of those pieces of myself has taken time, even within this position. Um, and it really meant that I had to get over that feeling, right? And I think even when we get into workplaces that allow us to uncover, sometimes we still bring forward baggage or sometimes explicitly trauma um, associated with previous positions in terms of the discrimination that we experienced uh, in those positions um, or in our job hunts even. And I definitely did that. I, I definitely brought that when I, when I started here. But, you know, my, my boss, uh, Colin Druin, has from the very beginning created that space for me. And, and always had an, an open door for me to kind of chat with him. And the perspective we go from is that there is always an ability to talk about what we need. Um, and it's, it's not a, the, we can only do these things. It's how can we do these things? How can we make it work for all of us? Um, and it always starts with a conversation. And I say that to my direct reports as well, is that everything always starts with a conversation. Um, mm -hmm. And that has meant that, you know, I, I have some of that safety that has been built up. I have some of that trust that has, has been built up because I've been, I've seen how really it's just, if I get the work done, we're good, right? And it doesn't matter how I get the work done, right? And and I think that's something that disables a lot of people is they get told how to get the work done. And that means that they end up feeling like they're not able to bring parts of themselves and not able to show parts of themselves. And, and I think the, the pandemic is actually a really good example of that in that we have seen especially reports of and research in regards to Black folks in the workplace and Indigenous folks and trans folks in particular have shown that working from home has felt safer 
their productivity has gone up. And why? Because you're not dealing with all those little things every day. And so I might experience discrimination and, and, and not, and maybe cover parts of myself when I work with certain clients, but I don't feel like I have to do that with my team. And that provides me the utmost, you know, safety and feeling of belonging, like, you know, I'm part of something. Um, and it's not just a, okay, you are these things and that's okay. It's a actual celebration of all the pieces of myself that I bring and a real look at how can we do that for the other members of the team. Um, and I think we're doing that quite well, seeing as we recently won, um, charity villages, uh, which for those who don't know is a source for nonprofit employment in Canada. And uh, we recently won the Charity Village Nonprofit Employer Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Under 20 Staff uh, of the Year Award. And it's because of this space that we've created. Um, and really, our focus is to walk our talk. And so sometimes me walking the talk um, for the other members of my team, especially as the second longest person on staff, means that I'm now in the place of having to create that for others. I'm now in the place of having to also be more vulnerable if I want a role model that people can bring all of themselves to the office. Um, well, the quote unquote office, because we're, <laughs> we're, we have staff in four provinces and we do all of our group things virtually. But you know, I, it's really about role modeling that vulnerability uh, so that others who have had a similar experience or had uh, poor experiences at other employers are, feel like they can heal that and feel like they can bring their, the parts of themselves in ways that they haven't in previous employers. And like, you know, I've at times had to hide the fact that I was non-binary even uh, with previous employers. I've had to hide that I was disabled but I don't have to do that anymore. And it feels really, really good. <laughs> and I think that is so important. You know, you shared so many gems in, in, in what you just what you just spoke about there about uncovering and, you know, the leaders that we speak with on, on, on frequent occasions about, you know, the conversations we have about they want to have a more inclusive culture. They want to bring in belonging. They want their people to be vulnerable and share. But all of that starts with a safe space, like you said. You know, and yeah. those of you who haven't read uh, Amy Edmondson's psychological safety book is, is a definitely a good book to to read about what that actually means when we talk about psychological safety. You um, you also mentioned in there about your line manager or, or the boss of the organization being open to having that conversation. And, you know, we share in our community all the time about being curious about each other you know, being open to being a bit more vulnerable. You know, Brené Brown uh, is, the, you know, the woman who talks about this on a frequent basis about vulnerability and how important it is if you want to see people thrive. What do you think, in your opinion, is are the barriers that are in place with organisations and leaders that are stopping people being vulnerable and being open? You know, what are the challenges? Because DNI and EDI or inclusion and belonging, it, it isn't new. You know, I know it's had a bit of a spotlight on it over the last couple of years based on the tragedies that have happened uh, with the murder of George Floyd and other, you know, other murders that happened in the US, which has put it in the spotlight to an extent, which has widened the horizon to other areas of diversity and inclusion. 
So it isn't a new thing. You know, I've worked in, in comms for 20 years and we've been speaking about this for 20 years. But that, yet there's still some resistance. And in your in your view and, and the work that you've done with, with colleagues and with organisations, what is that? What is stopping people making that change and being open and being honest? First off, I stand Brene uh, <laughs> Brown. Um, I just read her Atlas of the Heart oh, uh, book and... Um, she tweeted me back because I had thrown a shady tweet her way. But uh, uh, yeah, I think the idea of being vulnerable is a powerful one. However, the place that, and I've seen this critique made of, of for instance, the work of, of Brene Brown and, and others is that of recognizing that that vulnerability is only something that can be brought when there is safety. and pretty much no matter where you are, but especially coming from a country that colonized, you know, hundreds of different nations that participated in actual genocide and cultural genocide through the residential schools and, and others. Violence has happened here. No matter where we are, there has been that history of violence. Um, and certainly we also see how in uh, epigenetics, how there's a continued experience of trauma that is passed down through families, through generations. So no matter what, it is not fully possible to create a fully safe workplace. And I think one of the issues that happens is we just go from this EDI perspective from the, you know, kind of 1980s style of diversity um, without having evolved, kind of like as, as you were saying, where it's like, okay, we have this many people of this without recognizing that where we need to start is what are, how is our entire organizational system built to suit a specific community and how is that going to be able to create safety when all of your senior leaders are, are white, all of your senior leaders are, are men? You are not going to be able to create that safety for true vulnerability for every employee. But what we can do is create increased structures to support people in their growth uh, within their positions, we can work on addressing and making sure that there's uh, competence, cultural competence uh, among staff and directly connected to the work they're doing. So, you know, don't give me a, a queer 101. Give me how does how do we work on our communications strategy from a queer inclusive way? That is the training that needs to happen there if you're working with a comms department, for example, right? And I think we go in from this perspective of we can just create this inclusive environment so people can be vulnerable. And we can't fully. We, we have to recognize the history. We have to recognize the history within our own organization, how our own organization was set up. We have to recognize the history of the society that we're living in as a whole you know, I'm very conscious, for example, of being a white manager and the impact that that might have 
and working with my colleagues of color who are, are on the team in terms of their sense of safety and the like. I think of myself as, as a trans person and my experience of safety that I experience or don't experience when working with uh, cis colleagues. So for those who aren't familiar, cis refers to people who identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. So if you were assigned male at birth and you identify as a man, you would be considered a cis man. If you identify as a woman and you were um, assigned female at birth, you would be a cis woman. Um, and so my experience of safety is also going to be brought by all of those experiences of transphobia that I have experienced in my life, some of which have been quite serious, including many death threats over the years, many, many death threats over the years. Um, and so that sense of safety for true vulnerability is the wrong goal, in my opinion. And, and I, I think it's something that we like to talk about because it feels good, right? It feels really good to say, we're going to create an inclusive environment so everybody can be vulnerable and bring their whole selves. Like that feels good. It feels so great on the inside, but is it resulting in, you know, people of color being in senior management? Is it resulting in, you know, trans people moving up the organization or even being hired or feeling safe to be out at the organization in any capacity? You know, it's not necessarily going to result in that systemic change. So instead, we need to really back away from this idea of like, let's look at how we can empower people to be vulnerable and courageous and instead look at what are the histories here and how are we going to address the systems? And so the one other piece that I really wanted to mention is that, you know, I keep hearing about this concept of diversity fatigue. And you mentioned the word resistance. And I think that whenever we hear the word diversity fatigue, we should think about the word resistance instead, um, because it is not a fatigue to talk about a marginalized group once in a while, because it is a fatigue to live as a marginalized person every single day. And I don't think people fully understand that. I mean, that's what privilege is, right? Is being able to walk through the world without experiencing certain things. Not to say that we get all these benefits, um, though one could argue that there are, but, uh, but really it's about that uh, lack of barriers, right? And so when we think of diversity fatigue, it's really coming out of just... I don't want to talk about this because I have this privilege and I actually don't consider these people, this other group of people to be as worthy as I am. Whether they think that openly or not, that is what is instilled in us, that some people are more worthwhile than others. Um, and even when we aren't thinking that we are going from that perspective, sometimes we are. And so you know, this idea of diversity fatigue is really one where we need to really consider and think about what are the organizational structures instead of putting it on the individuals within the organization. And so that's the shift that I want to see within DEI. And some are doing that shift, but is shifting from this idea of if we just give individuals the tools which is important, it's important to have tools, 
But if we just give the individuals the tools, then everything will be great. But really it's, let's look at the structures, let's address the structures, and then we can give people tools. And I think really like one of the things we talk about in A Leader Like Me is we've got what we call our four A's. It's that first, you first have to acknowledge there's a problem, whatever mm -hmm. it is before, because sometimes that's the biggest barrier for get, yes. getting through the door and saying, why is this such a big deal? And, and that acknowledgement without it, you can't actually move forward. And then we say, then get aware of the data, understand the data. And, uh, you know, the fact that you've got uh, uh, multiculturalism or multigender at the bottom of an organization, but you don't at the top, there's a disconnect there. So how do you, what does your path look like and what's your actions? And then at the end of the day, what we want to see is accountability, right? We want to yes. see change and we know that some of that change will take time, but it's really being able to have a plan in place and then have accountability to what success looks like. And it can't simply be that check the box exercise. You know, uh, it is, do you get inspired by the, some of the organizations you're working with? Like what do you, what actions and what are people doing right out there that get you, make you hopeful about what's coming? I, I think that's a, Great question. And I, I, I do see possibilities, right? Like I, I, I've worked with some organizations where, you know, there's a change in leadership and then suddenly the organization is so on board to making some of these radical changes. Like I think of, because uh, I, I have to have a certain amount of confidentiality with some of the things that I, I talk to uh, the companies I work with. But I think of this one major Canadian retailer, for example, who I had been talking to a few of their staff uh, for a few years and they kept saying, you know, like nothing happens here. It's a really terrible environment. Um, we keep pushing, but it gets nowhere. And then there was a new CEO and oh my goodness, what a switch. Suddenly they're working on getting all the data right in terms of who their staff is. Suddenly they're making changes to their talent acquisition and their recruiting policies. Suddenly the employee resource groups have core funding um, and have their feedback that goes directly to, to some other senior leaders. And so, you know, I see organizations who are, are can actually make a major shift in a shorter amount of time. Uh, not to say that anybody can do a major shift in a short amount of time, because that's actually very difficult. But I do see that actually happening with certain organizations. And I just see more of a discussion about DEI um, from a concrete perspective than I think I saw previous to the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. So I see more people talking about DEI overall, but in addition to that, I see how it has deepened in some organizations and how things are being done in a more intersectional way. So for example, we we're talking about covering earlier. One of the best corporate events that I've been to, and I've been to quite a few at this point, um, uh, was actually done by the Asian Employee Resource Group and the Disability or Accessibility Employee Resource Group uh, at EY. And they actually did a whole section on uncovering and covering and what that looked like in the workplace and did it from a truly intersectional model, you know, really talking about how, you know, as a disabled 
uh, a woman, what her experience was um, as a racialized man who moved to Canada and has an accent and all of those things, what his experiences are, and really recognizing that a lot of the things that we need to do to make a truly inclusive environment are things that we need to do together. And so, you know, whenever I see employee resource groups that come from very differing perspectives, um, having a, I mean, core funding and executive leadership, all of those pieces, but also working together and actually working together in an intersectional way is really powerful. Um, I'm sure most of your podcast listeners understand the term intersectionality, but for anybody who doesn't, it's a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a uh, lawyer and theorist based in the U.S., about how when you have more than one marginalization, that that impacts you in a, a different way. So, for example, as somebody who is femme or feminine presenting and is also trans, I experience transmisogyny, which is different than just experiencing misogyny or just experiencing transphobia. Um, and it is a specific form of discrimination in and of itself. She used the term misogynoir to describe the experiences that Black women had in particular. Um, and so that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about intersectionality. Um, it really has become a buzzword, but the core concept of it is really important, but is rarely actioned. So the organizations who are doing that and actually recognizing that we can't just look at one community at any given time, although doing stuff that is specific for specific communities is important, we need to be looking at how does this impact multiple people and how are other folks being kept out? Um, because, you know, just because you have a bunch of men of color and a bunch of white women at the top of an organization doesn't mean your organization is inherently anti-racist and uh, anti-misogynist, right? Because the experiences for women of color in that organization is not the same. And so we really need to see those types of intersectional actions where we're looking at the experiences of communities who have multiple um, barriers. And some organizations are doing that. Also, uh, another, I guess, another shout out to EY, actually, it's, uh, funny enough, um, uh, they also have started to create uh, centers for neurodiverse folks. Um, so they can have neurodiverse employees um, who, and it's a space that has uh, lowered lighting, lowered sound is more sensory welcoming to neurodiverse folks because they recognize the amount that neurodiverse folks can bring. So mm. I see that as another really, really great example of, of something an organization is doing. You know, I think it's really important that we do look at these organizations um, who are doing good stuff. You know, we, we focus so much energy on organizations or people who are not doing great things. And you can lose hope, I think, and the, those examples that you've just shared with us, particularly around EY, you know, EY are known, I suppose, to be these kind of forward thinkers and are always one step ahead and, and, and in the UK and globally as well. So it's incredible that they have got these fantastic initiatives already in, in place that we will share, by the way. So 
Um, we'll make sure that it's in the show notes, the, the links and, and the, if the case studies are available, we'll, we'll add it to our show notes so people can can check them out. Um, we could talk to you all day. There's no, <laughs> there's no doubt about that, but we're just about approaching our rapid fire round. We're oh. not, the questions are rapid, but we probably, you don't have to answer them too rapidly. Um, but there's the three questions that we want to ask you just to, so that our listeners get to know you a little bit more as well. So name a leader you admire who inspired you. Who inspired me? Oh, uh, there are many. There are certainly many. Um, but one who really touched my heart in a very uh, deep way was Jamie Lee Hamilton, who was uh, who has since passed away. She passed away in December 2019 of, of cancer. Um, but she was actually the first um, trans youth uh, diagnosed as trans um, or having at the time gender identity disorder um, or gender dysphoria, uh, which uh, gender identity disorder is no longer a uh, diagnosis anymore. And in 1969, as as a teen, and you know, as somebody who came out as a teen myself at a time that there were very few trans people out, um, it uh, we there there are so many more trans people than than when I came out. She is a shining example of how you can persevere, um, and she became the first openly trans person to run for uh, government in Canada in 99. Um, she was also um, Indigenous and Two-Spirit um, uh, and was involved in um, some in Indigenous organizations. And she was a really, really powerful uh, uh, sex worker rights advocate and actually uh, was the one who pressured the Vancouver police to recognize the harm that they had caused and the deaths that they were indirectly responsible for by the pushing out of sex workers of the uh, Davie Street Village. And so, you know, Jamie Lee consistently was that advocate and that support person for others um, and really kind of showed me what that leadership could look like in the different ways of being the, you know, person that they uh, people go to for advice being the person that they uh, support uh, them in safety. And uh, yeah, if you haven't heard of Jamie Lee, go research Jamie Lee Hamilton. Oh, we'll um, look her up. Her. Um, what is the one piece of advice you would give your younger self? That's, that's a good one. Um, look up autism and neurodiversity. <laughs> Um, I'm joking, but also kind of not, um, because it, it is something that I've only fully understood about myself when I've gotten older, um, because I was the, you know, the smart kid. I was never assumed to be struggling in any way in ways that I was, but that, that is a real, a real thing, but also that, you know, you will find deeper love and compassion and connection than you ever thought possible. Amazing. So important. Uh, and final question, what wouldn't we know about you by just looking at you? Ooh, um, I mean, you wouldn't know that I'm a member of clergy because <laughs> that's that's something that is actually a really important piece of, of myself. 
I uh, do ceremony for folks um, and uh, am part of a polytheist and animist tradition. Um, and I was actually the first trans feminine and tied for the first trans person to present at the Far Parliament of World Religions back in 2018. Wow, amazing. Uh, and finally, Jade, if people wanted to find out more about you and the work that you do or anything that you, they should be aware of, what, 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 what is it that you want to tell them? And we'll make sure that we added it to our show notes as well, the links and everything. Well, certainly if you are in Canada, uh, we'd love to see folks interact with, with Pride at Work Canada, Fierté Otovay Canada. Um, uh, there's a lot that we do through our Pride partnership and community partner program, but we also have some public resources available as well. And uh, I mean, I know I always look for resources also internationally to, to inform here, and, and we've seen more international folks coming to, to our events virtually as well. So happy to see you there. I'm also available uh, uh, through my independent consulting website, uh, being jadepichette.com, as well as through uh, Twitter, uh, at jadepichette, although really find me on LinkedIn. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you find me on LinkedIn, I'm happy to talk and connect. And also keep an eye out because I'm very excited to announce that uh, we have a podcast that I am coming out with, uh, with uh, a colleague who runs a consulting company out of Edmonton, Alberta, um, Aaron Davis. And so in on May 17th, we will be launching the Uncovering Belonging podcast that will talk about uncovering and talk about belonging in the workplace um, and what that actually looks like and what people's stories are. Um, so I'm very, very excited about that. And and uh, hope some folks will tune in. Amazing. We can't wait to, to listen to that podcast. And we'll make sure that we share it as well when, when you launch it. So do make sure you let us know. Well, thank you, Jade. Like I said before, we could talk to you all day. You are full of incredible insight and information. And God, just a vault of knowledge. And we're very grateful for your time and energy that you brought to our episode today. So thank you so much. So lovely being with you both and uh, I hope everybody has a great week. 